your passports, please. Enjoy your trip. This is Bourbon Abroad. Round the world, one pour at a time. It's that brown water, man. It's, it's the juice. <laughs> the elixir of life. There is good bourbon to be found while abroad. Welcome to Bourbon Abroad, the podcast that travels the world one pour at a time. I'm Shane. And I'm Mike. And this is going to be the first of two special episodes that we're going to call Bourbon Abroad on Assignment. I know that we told you we were going to be in Rome. We're still going to get to Rome, but we're going to take another detour. Mike, why don't you tell us where you are? So Shane, excitingly enough, I am in Barcelona, Spain. All right. And how long have you been there? About a week. Okay. So this is going to be the first of two episodes that we do on the remarkable city of Barcelona. I guess what prompted you to head there? So my wife and I are actually, we're looking for some real estate in Portugal. You know, we got some stuff lined up to look at some properties and figured while we're here, let's take a little excursion over to Spain, specifically Barcelona, which is a city that I've wanted to go to for a very long time. But this is your first visit to Spain, correct? It is first time in Spain, first time in Barcelona. It's a great city that lives up to the billing. As this is the first episode, today we're going to be talking about the city's cultural highlights, the food, and we're also going to go to a couple of the cocktail bars, including Sips, which is the number three on the world's 50 best bars list, and another place that you found, La Whiskeria. And then in the second episode, which I know, Mike, you're dying to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> yes. You're going to tell us about yes. going to Paradiso, which is uh, the top-ranked top bar in the world, according to world's 50 best bars. So Until October 17th. And then we'll see where the chips land. <laughs> but for now, for the moment, the reigning champions, the best bar in the world. So you're definitely going to want to tune in to that episode. That'll be the second part of our visit to Barcelona. But in terms of Spanish cities, and I think this is something that you notice when you travel around Spain. Spain's not a very big country, but it is very regional. Yeah. Different cities, different regions of the country. They're culturally different. Sometimes they're linguistically different. And Barcelona is one of those cities that really stands out. It's going to be a lot different than what you find in Madrid or what you find in Basque Country or what you find in the south in Sevilla or places like that. It's only 90 miles from France. It's up there in the northeast of the country on the mm -hmm. Mediterranean. It's the mm -hmm. capital of Catalonia. They have their own language. The best way to explain it is it's a little bit Spanish. It's a little bit French. It's a, a romance language. Throughout its history, Barcelona has been fiercely protective of its culture, of its language, and of its identity. Of its heritage, right? Yeah. Kind of similar to uh, Montreal with the, with the French heritage. You know, they are not going to let that go. No, it, it, exactly. And at times, it leads to political yeah, controversies, clashes, clashes mm -hmm. And really, it all underscores how it is a very unique and distinctive 
part of Spain. Population of about 1.6 million. So we're talking a major city. Yeah, it was big. What did you think about it? It felt bigger than that population would suggest. It just keeps going and going and going. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of got that sprawl. What was it that put Barcelona on the map as a destination for you? Interestingly enough, it was 1992 Olympics, Barcelona Olympics. I was 16 years old. You know, everyone remembers the Barcelona Olympics for the dream team, Mm -hmm. uh, which I was a big basketball fan, you know, changed the landscape of basketball around the world. Because once, you know, obviously once the the NBA, the United States allowed their professional players, it, it just has elevated the game of basketball worldwide. Those Olympics, that was a huge deal, even if you weren't a diehard basketball fan. And it was really the first time I had ever heard of the city. The image that really stood out in my mind from those Olympics that made me be like, wow, Barcelona just seems like a fantastic city was one of my favorite sports that I watch during the Olympics only is diving. Mm -hmm. And that was Greg Luganis, the Greg Luganis heyday the diving platforms and everything were outside. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like the gold medal uh, event and Greg Luganis is on the high platform and the camera's panning and you can see the beach and the city and, and La Sagrada behind them. And I'm just like, someday I'm going to go there. And that was like the first international city that piqued my interest. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, you you mentioned La Sagrada. I know you're big into sculpture. You're big into architecture. And to me, Barcelona has some of the most unique architecture. What did you think of that? Tons of works there by Anthony Gaudi. Anthony Gaudi. That's, man, that says it all, that name right there. The first time I ever heard of him was the last time we were in Paris. I had heard his name associated with La Sagrada Familia, the, the cathedral that's you know, world famous here in, in Barcelona. I didn't know much about him other than that. And when we were in Paris, Musée d'Orsay had a Gaudi exhibition and they had a bunch of his works there, a lot of his furniture, the woodwork that he did. That was kind of like my first introduction to him other than just the architect of La Sagrada. He was from the mid to late 1800s. Was kind of like his heyday, and it was he was doing things that no one else was doing at that time. And if nobody's ever seen it, what we're talking about is the Spanish, or maybe more accurately, the Catalan take on Art Nouveau. Yes, it's very modern for that time. Very, I don't even know how to. It's like on the cathedral, all the reliefs and all the carvings and sculptures of the people, like mm-hmm. their heads are square, their hands are oversized, everything's real, like straight line block. But then he also uses a lot of, he said he was inspired by the natural forms, flowers and plants, vines, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of curvature. It's just amazing. If you've never seen La Sagrada, the only way I can kind of describe it is it looks like those um, sandcastles that you make where you just drip the sand, the wet sand out of your hands. and, And it's unlike any cathedral I've seen anywhere. Yeah. He died tragically. It wasn't of natural cause. It was like a, a tram accident yeah. or something. So and they, it was and they thought like, he was a beggar and they let him lay there for a while. Yeah. So it was just like, <laughs> horrible. You know, what? Yeah. This is not the way a guy of his talents and world renown, that's not how they should go out, you know? And so no. once it happened like that, very tragic, you know, of course you had a bunch of people that were then like, okay, we must carry on his work. And so, yeah, there's a lot of buildings 
you know, if it wasn't him that designed them, they were definitely inspired by him. And he's not the only artist associated with the city. You have uh, Juan Miro, you have Pablo Picasso. In Barcelona, they, they did, they have a Picasso museum. Did you get a chance to go to any of the museums? We did not. They were just coming off of Catalonia Day. So a lot of stuff wasn't open, even though it was supposed to be. And yeah, they celebrated it like the whole week. It just kept going. <laughs> so, so what was the food like? The food is great. Spanish food from Spain and Spanish food from Barcelona mm-hmm. is not like Spanish food that we have in no. the United States. Unless you have a true European right. Spanish restaurant. Two of the things that are big are the paella mm-hmm. and tapas. And for me, when it comes to tapas, the Iberico oh. pork and the ham. Oh, okay. that's the, all right. I'm, I'm all about that. You know, I'm, I, I'm so we, all we're going to talk about jamon <laughs> and we're going to talk about paella yeah. because those are two of my most favorite things. Just describe jamon Iberico. When you're talking about it, it just says like, okay, it's pork, it's ham, but it's much more than that. If you see him carve it, it's, it's basically mm-hmm. the pig's leg, the hoof, yep. I mean, everything. It's like the, the whole leg, mm-hmm. but it's been dried. I don't know what wizardry <laughs> they do to it. I didn't dig in deep enough into the, the history of what it takes to make it other than they have these acorn fed mm-hmm. pigs that they treat probably better than, than the way we live. And then they just yep. thinly shave it right off the leg. A lot of the best places do it yeah. like table side or they'll have it like up on the bar and you can kind of watch them yeah. do it on the counter. Man, it just melts Because it's mouth. not like a ham like we would have here in the United States. Um, it, it, it's, it's almost, it, it's been dried and cured for so long that when they slice it, it's almost translucent. It's got a deep red color to it. It's almost a little greasy. A little greasy. A yeah. little like stiff. It's similar to carpaccio or um, prosciutto. That's just a superior animal yes. that they're slicing yes, it, it off is. of. <laughs> it, it is absolutely delicious. Now, were you able to get some paellas <laughs> when you were there? I am not oh. a, the biggest fan of paella. But have you had it in Spain? So the only time you've ever been to Spain. I know. We went to a restaurant that they had. It was mm-hmm. like a pizza tray. I mean, it was yes. these massive trays of paella. And they set it right in the center of the table. It's got the big prawns in it. But yeah, no, dude, I didn't I didn't oh. try it. It's not my thing. <laughs> there was plenty of there was plenty of Iberico jamon to go around that I was good. And, and the tapas, the pan de tomate, mm-hmm. which is like tomato bread, it's like this great bread. And I don't, they just like make some kind of like tomato jelly and like smear it on there. That, that stuff's great. The olives, you know, the mm-hmm. olive tapenade. I had pork shoulder medallions, but it was a birico pork that were just melting your mouth, dude, just to die now, for. Now, you were telling me something yeah. about how at some of the cocktail bars, one of the big things is pastrami? Yes. So actually all throughout the city, I don't know where it came from. I don't know where they got their love for it, but almost any of the tapas restaurants, they had a pastrami sandwich on the menu and they were good. It didn't have the sauerkraut. It wasn't like a Reuben where they did like the Thousand Island dressing or anything. They did usually some sort of a a flavored mayonnaise and then they would do a stone ground mustard and then like a, like a slow. What kind of bread? Most of them had it on rye. Some places had it on like ciabatta or some other kind of crusty, like hard crusted bread. The only time I would get it is if I saw that it was yeah. it was on like a rye bread. And I was just like, all right, let me try this. That kind of makes me wonder where that comes from. Because mm-hmm. pastrami on rye with mustard, I mean, that that is totally delicatessen. Yes. That has nothing to do with Spain 
at all. <laughs> yes, and not to give any spoilers, but so Paradiso, their front as a deli. When you're standing out front of it, the freezer door is right there mm-hmm. and you can see people going in and out through the freezer, but their front is a delicatessen. The signage says like the upstairs smokehouse. Okay. You can actually go without going into the cocktail bar. You can actually go sit at the counter and, and get a pastrami sandwich. <laughs> good to know. Yeah. Now, being on the Mediterranean, how's the seafood? Seafood was good. The prawns are almost as big as lobsters. Yeah. I mean, the seafood was really good. The fish was good. You know, any of those seaports and right on the ocean, right on the Mediterranean, the marketplaces, you know, they all had fresh seafood you could buy and big mass of fish and scallops. We did these scallops that were served. They were baked, but they were served like oysters. Like they came in the shell. Okay. And had this tomato sauce and some of the abirico jamon cut up small, like on top. Oh, so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we've made everyone hungry, this is a good place to take a break. Uh, you all can uh, get a snack or uh, pour yourself something nice. Because when we come back, we're going to talk about the whiskey and cocktail scene in Barcelona, including Mike's visit to a couple of the best bars in that city and one that's listed as number three in the world. So stay tuned. This is Bourbon Abroad. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Bourbon Abroad. I'm Shane. And I'm Mike. And Mike, I'm really looking forward to hearing about what you found in terms of bourbon and cocktails in the city of Barcelona. Because I was doing a little bit of research, and Spain is the fifth most whiskey-consuming country on a per capita basis. That's after France, Uruguay, the United States, and Australia. Yeah. And so I'm interested to see what you found in the way of bourbon. Are American whiskeys, bourbons, rye? making inroads. There is a lot of whiskey, but, you know, scotch is king in Europe. When I was researching some of these cocktail bars and stuff, I was really interested to go to, there's a boulevard called La Rambles. Oh yeah. You were there, right? When you, yes. you and your brother were there. Yes. You, I remember you told me some great stories about La Rambles and, and I read a lot of good things about it, but Shane, it's, it's changed. Now it's just very touristy. It's like a mm-hmm. tourist trap. It's, it's not what it's not what it used to be anymore. <laughs> well, and, and you know, I was there, I was last there 20 years ago, so yeah, I'm, I'm not yeah. surprised. You know, and it's kind of like with any, any major city, the neighborhoods, where the <laughs> hangout spots are, it just kind of evolves and moves a little bit. You know, in Vegas, the old strip versus the new strip. Yeah. Or like uh, New Orleans, you have Bourbon, Bourbon Street. Street, but Bourbon Street is not where you go. That's not the cool no. place to go anymore. When we strolled La Rambles, that was the vibe I got. Yeah, this, this isn't it. But the new area that seemed like it kind of took over for that is the Aishampa neighborhood. And it has a new walking, like a strolling boulevard that cuts through the center of the Aishampa neighborhood called Carrer Dorago. Okay. And a major section of it that's blocked off. No cars can get in. All the cafes, their tables are out in what would have been the street. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the most affluent neighborhoods now. In all of Barcelona. Okay. Like a lot of the footballers live there. And is that where you found some of the cocktail bars? And that is where Sips is located. Sips is in Aixample. Okay. Now Sips is number three, right? Yes. Sips is number three on the 50 best bars. And I've been to many other bars that are ranked. You know, we talked about number five, um, Little Red Door, and some of that were in the 30s and in the 20s, different places around the world. So number three, Sips. I was 
blown away. Okay. It was the most impressive thing to me that they were ranked as highly as they are because they are literally just a neighborhood bar. It was mind blowing. I didn't do a lot of research on them going in other than, okay, I'm going to be in Barcelona. Paradiso's tops on my list, but hey, number three is there. I'm going to go check out number three so I can have a good comparison. Now, from number one to number three, they're a different vibe, a different style, but it's just a local bar. Unbelievable that they have climbed, that they've got the recognition and they've just climbed to number three. Do you think they deserve to be number three? I do. And I'll tell you why. Okay. So they're just a neighborhood bar. What do you mean when you say just a neighborhood bar? I guess explain that to me. So, you know, go to any city, you're walking down the street and you're just looking over, looking left, looking right. You see a bar here, a bar there, a bar. It could have been any one of those places. Okay. You you could walk right past it and there's just a bar. There was a little bit of a line. So when we got there, there were six people in a queue in front of us. Okay. It took us about 30 minutes to get inside. You couldn't make a reservation or anything like that. It's that way now, I'm sure, because they're number three. Right. You know, but two, three years ago, you probably could have just walked right up and walked right in. One cool thing about it is they didn't have a bar. Okay. They had a, they had a bar back. So they had a yeah. wall where they had all their bottles at. And then the whole place was full of tables. And this table in the center was where they mixed up all the cocktails. That's different. They had like two or three waiters. Whoever your server was, was also your bartender. Okay. They would come to your table. They would take your drink, you know, maybe the couple of tables next to you. And then they would go back to the center table. They would say what drink they were making. And it had a bar backer. He would grab the ingredients. Like his job was to make sure that that table was not cluttered with the ingredients they weren't using. So he would put away everything after a drink was made. And then when they would order, you know, they would come up and say what drink they were going to make. He would grab the ingredients, put it on the table for them. And they would make everything. So it's like in the round. If you're sitting close enough, you can watch what's being done, what's being made. Okay. But it was the the ingredients used. It was the the presentation, the mixologist's idea, the story that was told with these cocktails. I mean, it was, it touched all the senses. I think I sent you a picture of one of them. Mm-hmm. What you drank out of was like a glass face mask. And then it had these herbs hanging from the top. It was like dill, basil, and mint. And then it was a gin-based cocktail. So as you're drinking the cocktail, you basically got to put your face inside this this glass like egg-shaped glass dome, and then you, you're inhaling all those. I mean, it was just... And I know people are probably listening to this going, what is he talking about? <laughs> and, and I tell you, when I saw that picture, I was like, yeah, what, I'm like looking is, through. what is this? It, it, it was weird looking. Yeah, It was the weirdest looking drink that, that I've seen. I, I guess, what kind of ingredients were they using and, and what kind of ideas were they doing with the presentation besides that one? Yeah, so one of the cocktails that they have is called the bubble. And it's like this bowl with the cocktail in the bottom of the bowl. And then there's these bubbles that sit on top of the cocktail. So as you take a drink, the bubbles are like popping against your nose and in your face, but it has it like an aroma in it. There's a little bit of novelty, but it all added to the experience of the cocktail. It wasn't just like, Oh yeah, let's just do this and have this smoke dome and you you know, oh that looks cool. Right. It all added to the experience of the cocktail. It played a role in the enjoyment of the cocktail. Okay. In your opinion, even though it's otherwise very low key, comes across as a local bar, it totally deserves that number three ranking. Yes. Do you think that's part of the appeal of it? That you know it is so low key, and then you go in and you're like, whoa, yes, what, what is going on? I think it is so low key. I think that's part of the appeal. It's very accessible. There wasn't a doorman standing out front, like strong arming everybody and eyeballing you. And 
Mm-hmm. And you didn't have like a QR code you had to scan and, and wait two hours or make a reservation. And it had accessibility. I would say probably most of the top 10 bars just don't have. It was a place like you would want to just go chill. Mm-hmm. It just um, happens to be the third best bar in the world. <laughs> third best bar in the world, according to 50 best bars. Yeah. Right. Right. I decided I didn't do any bourbon cocktails there. Okay. Besides the gin, what did you do? Both drinks I had were gin. Wow. Look at you. (laughs) Look at you. Going to Spain. Both I had were gin. And Season, my wife, she had uh, mezcal. I mean. Okay. Yeah. She's she's totally a mezcal girl. Not a mess cow girl, but a mezcal girl. (laughs) Mezcal girl. Yes. Those are two different things. The first drink I had was the last word, okay, which is gin and lime juice, chartreuse. chartreuse. Yes. I mean, great. I've actually never ordered the last word at a bar before. Really? I've had it before. You know, a friend or somebody's like, oh, I got to have one of these. I make them better than anybody. And you're just kind of like, okay, yeah, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. But I've never ordered one at at a bar before. And I tried it. You know, it was good. It's kind of a classic. And so then once I did that and I started looking through the menu and I saw the one that comes in like the glass egg shape, that's like the face mask. And it was called the Crypta. Okay. On the menu, it gives you a little definition. It says a cocktail that you breathe. And it was made with uh, Sip Smith Gin, Armagnac, and Clarified Green Apple. That's interesting. And it was pretty good. And when they bring them out to you, you know, it comes on this tripod. It's got the glass bell sitting there. Mm And the bartender kind of gives you a little description of what it is, how you do it. Because some of these other cocktails they bring out, you're just like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like one, it comes out <laughs> like the bowl. The bowl that it's in is is shaped like hands. Okay. It's called the first cup man ever used. Yes. I've, yes. I saw that in the menu. Yeah. So it's that's the way it's shaped. And so he basically tells you like, hey, man, just put your hands underneath those hands and just pick up and drink. Okay. And so they kind of give you a little definition and kind of explain to you, look, this is what you do. And uh, yeah, so it, it's very chill, laid back, unpretentious, but yeah, it's it's an adventure. Got to kind of step outside your comfort zone a little bit. You might have a bubble pop in your face or be looking weird through a glass bell as you hold it up to your <laughs> face like a weirdo, but. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like you had a green mustache in that picture. That's, I was like, what? Uh, what? Yeah. Hey, go, go to, go to bourbonabroad.com. You'll be able to see the pictures of what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, we're trying to do our best to describe it. It's unlike anything you've ever seen. Yeah. Now, you went to another place and that was La Whiskeria. By that name, I'm guessing this is very whiskey focused, but was it bourbon focused? So La Whiskeria was actually a recommendation that I got from Eddie at Eddie's club in Porto. And he was just like, well, you got to go to La Whiskeria. So they have roughly 1,200 bottles. They are claiming to be the biggest whiskey bar in Europe. Okay. Now let's, let's hold on because just uh, last episode, we talked about Golden Promise mm-hmm. and the whiskey tasting room yes. there. So it's a debatable topic. I don't know who officially has more bottles. I know they both have over a thousand. Okay. But like I said, they're claiming to be the biggest whiskey bar in Europe. They are probably undisputedly the biggest whiskey bar in Barcelona and or Spain for sure. Okay. As far as all of Europe, I don't know. I'm imagining there's some pretty big whiskey bars when you start getting into Ireland and and Scotland and some of those places. Yeah. But it was great. It was a great place. They have 1,200 bottles. And surprisingly enough, they had 50 plus bottles of bourbon. What were some of the highlights? They had Michter's 10-year rye and Michter's 10-year bourbon, E.H. Taylor. 
small batch, single okay. barrel. They had they had Shanks. Okay. Shanks Sour Mash, which is a product of Michter's. Not one you see very often. Not one you see very often. Very hard to come by in the United States. That was a nice surprise. They had Peerless. Peerless Rye, Peerless Bourbon, Peerless Double Oaked. They had a good selection of, you know, some of the Peerless stuff, which Peerless is a relatively new player mm-hmm. in the bourbon game, you know, out of and, Kentucky. And not a huge distiller. Yeah. That was cool to see. Um, they had Heaven Hill. They had a couple different offerings of Heaven Hill. They had... Few, I think they had Few's whole, you know, pretty much their whole lineup um, okay. out of New York City. In fact, the, the bartender, Killian, super cool dude. He was Irish. He had just gotten back from New York. Okay. And while he was in New York, he actually got to go to Few Distillery, you know, make some cocktails there and hang out with the distiller. And they got a tasting room and got to know those guys pretty good. He was telling me some cool stories, but I actually went outside of bourbon a little bit. I tried a couple of different things. They had a, a scotch, but it was a scotch rye. Okay. Which was very interesting, Shane. It was really good. I didn't know that scotch even messed around with rye, but it was it was good stuff. So it was a scotch made with rye yeah. instead of barley. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, that would be interesting. So it was Rye Law, Fife Single Grain Scotch Whiskey. So it was made with, with the rye instead of barley, like you're saying. It was very unique. It, it still had the things that you're familiar with, with this when, it, when you drink a scotch, but... It had that rye spice to it. It was a nice detour from drinking the bourbons, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was on recommendation by Killian. We were kind of hitting some of the ryes. That Michter's 10-year rye, he had about three ounces left. You know, they were doing two-ounce pours and he had like three ounces left. And I'm like, come on, man. That's, just, that's a bo- <laughs> that's bottle kill all day long, right? Let's just, and he just like <laughs> looks around. He's just like, yeah, come on, let's do it. And just, yeah, so it was cool. <laughs> So was that a very popular place? I mean, how long have they been around? They've been open for about three and a half years. So they okay. were at their old location for about two and a half years. They couldn't expand, you know, accumulating these different bottles of whiskey. And then to still, it just, they just didn't have enough room. So they moved to this new location and he said they'd been there about a year. And since they moved to this bigger location, he said it's blown up. It probably also hasn't hurt that the pandemic restrictions and things like that also ended. Yes. How many people are going out? right. It was interesting enough. I asked them, they did make some good cocktails. I was doing straight pours. I'm watching him make some cocktails. So I asked him, I says, what do you make the most? What's the number one cocktail you make here? And he gets this disgruntled look on his face. And I'm like, what's up, man? He's just like, whiskey sour. <laughs> but like a good whiskey sour with the egg white? So they're not allowed to use... Oh. They're not allowed to, they can't be fresh egg whites. They can't crack the egg. That like, that's like a, like a Spain. Yeah. Like a law that they have. He's like, dude, these are like the bane of my existence. I literally (laughs) make these in my sleep. I wake up in the morning, like uh, whiskey sour. (laughs) Oh man. Uh, That would, that would be kind of rough. Did you get a sense from him as to whiskey's popularity in that part of Spain? They love whiskey. But they're not very adventurous when it comes to bourbon yet. They're doing the Jack Daniels. They're doing the Jim Beam. Michter's is making some big strides in the European market. I see a lot of bullet, but they're, you know, they're not doing that for straight pours. Those, these are all for just cocktails. Nobody's really doing straight pours of bourbon. If they're going to just drink a whiskey on the rocks or a whiskey straight. They're doing some kind of scotch. Okay. It's going to be a slow thing. But hopefully enough people will listen to this and we'll talk to enough bartenders. It kind of helps spread the word, but it's a slow process. We're talking centuries of familiarity and what they know and like and just trying to change that but it, it'll happen well it sounds like your trip to barcelona was pretty fun and yeah. 
we have not even gotten to the best story. And <laughs> so you're going to have to tune in for our next episode where Mike is going to take us to Paradiso. And you're going to want to hear this story. I know Mike is very pumped to tell this story. He was sending me texts and calling me, and it was probably after midnight in Barcelona yeah. when he was doing this. So that just kind of gives you a sense of of how excited he was. Paradiso ranked Paradiso. the number one bar in the world. Mike is going to take us beyond where most people get to go. So you're not going to go behind the curtain. <laughs> go behind the curtain. <laughs> And, and so you're not going to want to miss our next episode. As always, head on over to the website, Bourbon Abroad, where you can find pictures and links to the places that we talk about. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, the Bourbon Abroad Bulletin. For Mike, I'm Shane. We'll catch you next time as we travel the world one pour at a time. Thanks for listening. The Bourbon Abroad Podcast is a production of Bourbon Abroad and Corduroy Coat Media.